Good morning, everyone. It's a joy to be here with you this morning from up top. Uh, was not expecting to be here on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, Thursday or Friday, but Saturday uh, I got the call and uh, grateful to be able to open the Word of God with you all. Uh, so joy to be here. Also, thank you so much, uh, Praise Ringers and Carolyn uh, Ringers. Uh, we're so grateful for the talent and the gifts of our church, a sacrifice of worship to God. Uh, if you normally are at the 8 o'clock service, welcome. This is what 11 o'clock looks like. Uh, and uh, glad you were able to sleep in a little bit, but don't get too used to it, all right? Because, you know, the 8 o'clock service is the beginning, the very first opening of the day for us here at the church. So I do encourage you to join us for the 8 o'clock Uh, For those that are skeptical of your ability to do that, uh, you are allowed to have coffee when you wake up. And so that will get your juices going, and that will be a great way to start your Sunday morning. Uh, But we did provide an extra anthem for you for those that missed the 8 o'clock to to make up for that. So uh, glad you're here. Glad everyone was safe along the way. Uh, So if you were here last week or if you were on the stream last week, uh, we had walked through Galatians 2. And we looked at Paul's confrontation of Peter in ways he lived out of step with the gospel. It was very clear, and Peter believed and knew that Christ has come. He fulfilled the ceremonial law. Therefore, circumcision was no longer a requirement for God's people. And he was also aware of the fact that through Jesus Christ, the dividing wall of hostility, which divides ethnic groups, was torn down. That Christ came for all nations to bring God's blessing to all nations as Genesis 12 reminds us. But out of fear of judgment of certain strict and rigid Jewish believers called the, uh, the circumcision group, the Judaizers, he, he held back. He held back his convictions and he withheld fellowship from the Gentiles. And we see in this text that he is not living out the true gospel. Well, when he's confronted him in verse 15, this is where we're going to be next week. So we're not going to be in Galatians today. We're going to be in Zechariah 3. If you want to go and turn there, you can. Uh, But in, in verse 15, he begins his argument about justification by faith. The core conviction that Peter had, which should have made him realize that he should embrace the Gentiles because they too had faith in Jesus. What he says in verse 15 is very interesting. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth. And not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Essentially what he's saying here is that we Jewish people that have the whole Old Testament scriptures, we know that we're not saved by works. So why are you acting as if salvation is by works of the law? It's only through trusting in the mercy of God through sacrifice. And so we see in this text that, again, Paul is pointing to the Jewish belief, the Old Testament conviction. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to give us a snapshot of this Old Testament conviction through the book of Zechariah, uh, chapter 3. And I think as we study this text together, we'll see that justification is not by works in the Old Testament, but by trusting in God's mercy, by trusting in the imputed righteousness of another. So go ahead and turn to Zechariah 3, and while you're doing that, I'll give you a a little synopsis of Zechariah 3. Uh, First off, Zechariah was written in the post-exile time period. So it was written to the people in Israel that were exiled for 70 years because they were filthy sinners, right? 
They had sinned and broken God's law. They had pursued idolatry. They had run rampant in rebellion against God. And the Lord evicted them from the promised land. Seventy years of exile. They had just now returned under Cyrus, the king of Babylon. And we see here that ultimately uh, the people are returning to the promised land. The big question is, will God continue with us in this land? Will God continue to be faithful with us even though we were faithless against him? a matter of fact, the return from exile itself is an argument that they're justified by faith. Because God gave them second, third, fourth, fifth chances because of his mercy. And so we see in the text here that ultimately they're returned into the land. But there's questions of what do we do in this land? How do we avoid exile again? How do we continue as God's people returning to the land well the first thing was to rebuild the temple so they rebuilt the temple but the temple itself is not magical as if you were to simply enter the temple do temple ritual things and that all of a sudden secures your relationship with god no they needed a renewal of the heart and so the book of zechariah is a call for the people of god to return to faithfulness to god according to his covenant you see that very uh, in the beginning of Zechariah 1, where he says, Return to the Lord, and the Lord will return to you. And so we then see various visions. Now, we're not going to go into all the complexities of these visions. I actually chose the one that's the most concrete. All right, So we're not going to be in the abstract today, wondering about horses and measuring tools. Uh, we're going to be looking at Zechariah 3, which is a vision of the high priest. And this vision shows God's faithfulness to a filthy people. Unless you think I'm saying a statement about Jewish people in particular, let me rephrase that. To all of us, filthy people. Now maybe you didn't come this morning thinking that you would hear that uh, you're more filthier than you imagine. I mean, many of us took showers this morning. Many of us put new clothes on this morning. We're dressed nicely. But behind the veneer, there is a corrosion and corruption of our character at the very core. And we need to hear this text. Because unless we reckon with our own moral filth, we will not see the beautiful faithfulness and the righteousness of Jesus. So let's hear this in Zechariah 3. I'll read verse 1 through 10. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, 
for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of the Lord for God's people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that through the revealed word of God and the direction of your Holy Spirit, you convict us of our sin. You unveil and expose us of our unrighteousness, that we would see our need of the righteousness of another. Lord God, we come this morning as filthy people desperately needing the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. Help us to see Jesus, to savor Jesus to long for His coming and His righteousness. And would you make us new by that Spirit, that we might trust in His holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you've heard the news recently that there was a celebrity that was exposed. I'm not talking about a celebrity from the movies. I'm not talking about a celebrity and music. I'm not talking about an athlete. We've, we've grown regular and, and common to expect these things from these people. I'm talking about a Christian celebrity. I'm not going to name his name. I'm not going to tell of his deeds. But if you were paying attention to any of the news stories this past week, you know who I'm talking about. You see, even Christian celebrities fall and their moral filth is on display. And it saddens me every single time I hear of a Christian pastor or a Christian leader who is a model of maturity, who is called to be a preacher of purity, who is called to defend the truth and be an apologist who is accountable to his God, live in contrary difference to the gospel that he has preached. It grieves me greatly because this only gives fodder to the secular world around us to mock the gospel, to look at Christians as hypocrites, to throw out our message as ineffective, to say that Christ and his kingdom is worthless and unworthy. You see, when celebrities fall and we see their filth, we often move towards judgment also. We join the secular world and say, how could he, that gross sinner out there? We fail to look in the mirror in this time to see our own filth, to see our own corruption. We like to judge other people because it makes us feel more righteous, more holy. But brothers and sisters, lest you were one of those this past week, I want to call you to humility. Because the same seed of sinfulness that existed in that man exists in every single one of us. And rather than casting judgment on the moral filth of every other person and of our Christian celebrities, may we humble ourselves before the righteous, perfect Christ, realize our filth and His faithfulness to cleanse the filth from within us. You see, in this book of Zechariah 3, we see a Christian celebrity, Joshua. He's the high priest. He is the one who is elevated high above the people of God to be the representative before the glory of God to make sacrifice and atonement for sin. 
The high priest was meant to be one that was above the cut, one who was following the Lord in faithfulness and truth. But he was never sinless. And perhaps one reason why we create Christian celebrities and we have expectations of moral excellence and we expect perfection of every preacher that ever enters a pulpit is because we have forgotten that the preacher is also a sinner. That the preacher also needs mercy. That the minister who is a model of righteousness is also a model of confession. And we see here in this text in Zechariah 3 that the Lord is faithful to the filthy. And this is good news for us filthy people. Because the Lord then can forgive us and change us and cleanse us. So what do we see first off? First off, we see that the Lord has chosen the filthy for salvation. Look at Zechariah 3, verse 1. We see here a courtroom set up. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Do you see what's happening in this text? The court has been set. The judge is on this chair and the verdict is about to come out. The accuser is Satan. The one accused is Joshua the high priest. The judge is the angel of the Lord who is the messenger of God's judgment and justice. You see, what we need to know here is, again, Joshua was the high priest. He was the one that made atonement, who sacrificed for the sins of people. But yet this man who is making sacrifices is covered in sin. This angel of the Lord stands in God's behalf to bring God's verdict. But notice the judge isn't the one accusing this man. Satan is. The ancient foe of God, the enemy of God's people, is running rampant at this man, Joshua the high priest, God's man that's been destined and set apart to serve his people. Satan is accusing him. Well, why? Is it because Satan is one who longs for righteousness and he is disgusted at the sight of unrighteousness? We know that's impossible because sin entered the world through his deception. A matter of fact, Satan's title is the deceiver of the whole world. As Revelation 12 says, Revelation 12 also reveals his other title. Not only is he the deceiver who draws us away from trusting God and turning towards his purposes, but he is also the accuser. He is the accuser of the brethren. Now, I don't know if any of you are fishermen or fisherwomen, if you enjoy going on the waters and going for fishing, but Satan is one of the best fishers because he draws us in and he entices us by his cunning, by his deceptive lies that the good life is found and rebellion against God. God is making your life spoiled. Find life in sin. He deceives us. He allures us, entices us. For what purpose? To catch us and to kill us. You see, Satan's MO has been from the beginning to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's what we see happening here in Zechariah 3. He brings Joshua, the high priest, into his court only to accuse him, to kill him, and to cast him off, to make him feel the weight of his unworthiness, and to show him that God would have nothing to do with this filth. You see, he is not only the accuser of Joshua, but he's also our accuser. He is the one who calls us out for our sin, not for righteousness' sake, but to make us feel unloved, unworthy, unaccepted, and unredeemable. You see, all of a sudden, the interesting thing in this story 
is the judge hears the accusations. And he silences him even before the serpent speaks. It's not because the judge doesn't agree with the serpent that this man is full of filth. It's not that Satan somehow uh, is able to uh, persuade God that he is a man of filth. God already knows the filth of our sin. and knows the filth of Joshua. But what is he doing here? He first rebukes Satan. Look at the text. Look at verse 2. It says right here, uh, before that, actually, in, in, yeah, verse 2 right here, it says, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord rebuke you. He says it twice. What is the first thing Satan does? He silences the mouth of the accuser. On what grounds? Look at the text. It says, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. You see, the first thing that the filthy need to know is that you are chosen by God. You see, the story of shame makes us feel unworthy, unlovable, worthless, and utterly unchosen. And here we see in this text that the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that this filthy high priest is called to represent. But why did God choose Israel? And why does he choose us? Is it because we're a cut above? Is it because we're more righteous and more worthy? Well, Deuteronomy 7 says this. You are a people holy to the Lord your God, not because of your holiness. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, not because you're beautiful. He chose them out of all of the people on the face of the earth. Why? It was not because you were more number, more impressive, more righteous, more moral, followed the law, had a greater capacity to do good, to look good, to clean up. Why? Because the Lord set his love on you and chose you according to his promise. Why did God give them the land of the promised land? It wasn't because they were more righteous. Deuteronomy 9.5 says, Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, but because of the wickedness of the nations. Because God was faithful to his covenant promise. You see, this is good news for us that still struggle with sin. That God's election will not change. That His choice of you was never because of your righteousness. Never because of your morality or your worthiness. It was never based on your ability to clean yourself up or to make yourself presentable. The Lord chose you because He loves you. And has set His affection on you as His child. We see this choice clearly displayed and and the unworthiness of this choice in this metaphor that he uses later after this in verse 2. He says about Joshua the high priest, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now what is God doing here? This is very interesting if you think about it, right? Because if Satan is basically saying you are worthless, you are dirty, you are filthy, you're good for nothing, what would God say? This is my treasured possession. This is the prime jewel. This is the, the, the what is the diamond? Uh, the, the princess diamond. The glorious, shiny, bright diamond that I love. You would think that God would counter the argument and accusation of Satan with a declaration of the beauty of this jewel. But he doesn't do that, does he? What does he say about Joshua? You are a brand. A burning stick whittling away, almost burned up to utter uselessness. But what does the Lord do? He snatches that stick from the fire. He grabs his hand in hurried, racing love to rip it away from the burning flames. 
And I don't know about you, I've never been in a house fire, but I've seen a lot of movies with house fires. Think about this for a second. What are those things that you snatch from the house fire? Are they the empty, futile things? Does anyone grab their napkins because you think you might need to clean up after this house fire? Does anyone maybe grab toothpaste because you think maybe my breath is going to smell whoever I interact with? I need to grab the toothpaste. Does anyone grab the subtle things, maybe a blanket, because you might be cold after the fire? No. What do you grab? You grab a wedding ring. You grab your guitar. You grab that which is precious to you because you love that thing. And the thought of losing that thing is worse than anything you can imagine. And so when the Lord snatches this brand from the fire, he's saying two things at once. He's saying, yes, this person is filthy. Yes, this stick has been whittled down to utter worthlessness because of its sin and has no worth to bring to the table, but I love the burning stick. And so the Lord snatches from the fire that which he loves. And this is what he's done for all of us. All of us whittled down sticks that are burned away by sin's ravaging effects. He snatches us from the fires of hell and judgment. Because God loves us. But he doesn't just snatch us from the fires. The Lord Jesus Christ entered the fires on our behalf. He entered the fire in our place, bearing upon his back the judgment that we alone deserve. Lest we think that God doesn't love us. Lest we think that we are worthless because of our sin. Lest we think that we are nothing but filth. God snatched you. And he has replaced you with his son. To bear the penalty of sin. See, Martin Luther, when he was burdened by accusation from Satan, when he was helping others with their burden, with accusation with Satan, he gave a lot of really good advice. One person that was overcome with depression and anxiety, feeling the weight of Satan's accusations, he told him, first of all, rejoice, because God is at work. Satan wouldn't be accusing someone that he didn't care about, that he didn't think was doing big things for God's glory. Satan wouldn't try to disrupt the work of the kingdom with one person if they weren't doing great things for God's kingdom. So he says rejoice. And then the next thing he says is ignore. Ignore the accusations of Satan. Shut it off. Turn off the volume. Smash the radio. Because, you know, Satan wants you to enter into the ring and enter into an argument and defense. But it's interesting that even God himself doesn't come to the defense of Joshua. He doesn't say, oh, no, he's righteous. He's good. He's not filthy. What he says is he's chosen. What he says is he's delivered. What he says is he's saved. He doesn't diminish the shame of Joshua, but says, I deliver this man in his shame. And you know what we don't need, brothers and sisters? We don't need a diminished view of our depravity. But we need to know that God in all of his sight, in all of his clarity, sees our sin and saves us the same. He sees our sin and he loves us the same. And so we don't simply diminish our depravity, but we say, I'm worse. I'm worse than I can tell you. I'm worse than I've shown. But God loves the sinner because Christ came to die for sinners. Here's what he says here uh, in response to the devil. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? 
Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. You see, what this reminds us is that our assurance of salvation is based on God's faithful choice and not our good choices. This reminds us that we must resist the shame story that tells us we are worthless because of our choices. We also must resist the cover-up story that tells us that we're really nothing, there's nothing wrong with us. This is the story of our culture, to simply say there's nothing wrong with us. We are all just unique, making unique decisions. We need to hear the story of the cross, which says we are more filthy than we ever wish were true. But we are more deeply loved, delivered, and saved by Jesus Christ. Well, time is fleeting and moving alongward. So let's move forward. What do you say? Because God doesn't just give us the great assurance to those that are filthy like you and me that he loves us, that he has chosen us, but he also clothes the filthy one. And this is getting to justification by faith. He not only bears the penalty, the fires of hell that we deserve, but he also clothes us with pure vestments, white and righteous, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. What does this mean? Read on. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. This is Zechariah speaking. Wait, one more thing. Just put the clean turban. Don't just give him a robe. Put a turban. He's the high priest. He needs a clean turban. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. You see, the Lord not only assures the filthy that he has chosen you in love, that God loves the burning stick. Not only has he delivered us by taking the punishment upon himself, But he has exchanged our filthy clothes for the radiant righteousness of Jesus. Is this not begging for justification by faith? Is this not causing us to long for Jesus in the greater righteousness freely given, covered by his perfect record? You see, Joshua stands before the angel again. But it's not before the judgment of God and this angel But it is to be clothed. It is to be honored with the righteousness, an alien righteousness apart from himself. You see, this vivid picture tells us that Satan has literally removed, the, the sin that Satan accused is literally removed from their sight. It's taken off. No longer to be seen. What is seen? The righteousness. The pure vestments. But the question that we don't have addressed here is where did the filthy uh, garments go? Surely God can't just take off that sin that we've done for our whole life and just put it aside as if it was irrelevant and didn't matter, as if it had no relevance to our eternal state and our present condition. No, we see in clarity in the New Testament what has happened to that filthy garment. Second Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made him, Jesus, to be sin 
to bear the filth of our sin on His body so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Where do the filthy garments go? As Colossians 2 says, the Lord God went to the cross where He bore our sin and our shame and He took the garments of our filth and He nailed them to the cross. He bore the filth of our sin and He bestowed on us His perfect righteousness. This is the good news of the Gospel. That we have washed our robes in the blood of the Lamb. And though this cost God greatly, and Jesus greatly, He did so willingly. Because He loves turning burning sticks into a building of God's church where His glorious mercy and grace would be on display. And so Paul says in Galatians 2.15, we Jews know this. We're not justified by our works. We're filthy like the rest. We're Jewish sinners. They're Gentile sinners. We're only cleansed by the sacrificial blood of the Lamb. The sacrifice that was made yearly on behalf of the Jewish people that was looking ahead to the one Lamb of God who could truly take away sin. Jesus Christ, the faithful. And so when you look at your sin, I want you to take five looks at Jesus. Take five looks at the cross where your sin has been born and look at your clothes. Though dirty in sight before God, they are pure vestments because you have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. If you have not yet turned and trusted in Jesus, I beg and plead that you would throw off the filth to the Savior who embraces you, who loves you, who is willing to trade His righteousness for your filth. This is justification by faith. Not a new invention, but an old story of a God of mercy, of love, who exchanges Himself for us. Well, there is another celebrity in the history of the church. And unlike the celebrity unmentioned earlier on, he was honest about his filth. He wrote a whole book confessing his filth. It's called The Confessions. His name is St. Augustine. You see, St. Augustine had a pervasive and lifelong struggle with sexual sin. He constantly gave himself to the desires and the longings and lusts for sex. He was ashamed of this. Greatly ashamed of this. But he found in Jesus Christ one who could bear his shame. And I want to end by sharing a bit of his testimony. This is in the book, Confessions. He says, Late have I loved you. Beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. And see, you were within and I was in the external world and sought you there. And in my unlovely state, again, honest about his sin. In my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely created things which you made. You were with me, and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you. Though if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. You called and cried out loud, and you shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant and I drew in my breath and now I pant for you. 
I tasted you. And I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. You see, when we see the beauty of Jesus, the one who bore our sin and gives us his righteousness, we long for his peace, which comes not by works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus who takes our filth and covers us in his righteousness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, as we move to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we think on your work. We consider the cost of your sacrifice for our sins. We see you bleeding on the tree, bearing the judgment for our sins. We see you entering into the fire, snatching the burning stick and staying there on our behalf. We see you, Jesus, and long to see you more. Oh, grant us the gift of faith that we might be honest about our filth. Confess our filth before you, the righteous and holy God of mercy. And know the relief that you do not accuse us. You do not rebuke us to eternal damnation. But you embrace us as beloved children of God through faith in Jesus, who justifies us by his work. We thank you, Lord Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.